Father, your word says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Father, we think of our nation that is doing this very thing, our world, calling evil good and good evil. But you told us that these days would sometime come upon us and we are living them. So help us not to be drawn away by the spirit of this world, but to have our minds renewed today through the truth of your holy, infallible word. Thank you that like newborn babes, as we long for it, that we can grow today in respect to our salvation. And thank you that what you penned through the prophet Daniel six centuries before Christ is not simply what you have said, but what you are saying, that your word is alive, it is life-changing. And so as we open it, we come with a great sense of humility, seeking not to lean on our own understanding, but as we use our minds, for you told us to worship with them, We ask that the Spirit would enable our thinking, illumine the truth that is found here. I pray that he would help me today, strengthen me and fill me and use me. I ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Would you take the Word of God, please, this morning and turn to the book of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel is the revelation of the Old Testament. What revelation is to the new, Daniel is to the old. And if you haven't already discovered it, it's very difficult to understand the revelation that was given by Jesus Christ to John without a proper, clear understanding of this book. And that's why we're studying Daniel, and we will follow it, if God allows, by the book of Revelation. Now, most students of prophecy understand that this chapter that we're in is one of the most important Old Testament prophetic passages concerning the coming events, because it takes us all the way from the time of the Gentiles beginning with Babylon until the fifth and final kingdom when Messiah himself will come back a second time. And so when you come to the seventh chapter, you turn a corner in your study of Daniel. People who don't believe there's actually a literal kingdom coming, as the Bible promised in the Old Testament, because they say that there's no future for the Jewish people, how mistaken they are, but they don't know what to do with most of the chapters in Daniel. Oh, they preach about Daniel and the lion's den and the three men who don't burn and a few highlights, but they really can't teach Daniel because of presuppositions that they start with. Well, I hope by the time we are finished with Daniel, you will see that every word in here is going to be fulfilled just as God said. The first six chapters we saw are largely historical with a little bit of prophecy in the second and the fourth chapters. The second half of the book is largely prophetic with a little bit of history in it. And so remember, one through six happened chronologically. The visions in seven through 12 happened chronologically, but not after chapter six. They happen in and around chapters one through six, as I showed you last time. So here in the seventh chapter, Daniel is having a dream singular in visions, plural. And God often spoke in dreams and visions in ages past. The first vision that we're studying here in the prophetic chapter section is here in the seventh chapter is a vision 
that again begins with Babylon and goes all the way until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is giving these visions, not just for the people in our day, but for the people in Daniel's day. Remember the setting. They were away in a time of deportation. They had been carried away by Nebuchadnezzar the king, and it would be very easy to get discouraged and to begin to think that God had forsaken Israel. But remember, the prophet Jeremiah said that God loves Israel with an everlasting love, that as long as the stars and sun are in the sky, and they won't be removed until the second coming, and not by accident, God is committed to the nation of Israel. So any teacher, any Bible student who tells you that we are the new Israel, they have misrepresented the Word of God. We're not the new Israel. We are the church, and the church is distinct from Israel. And God's not done with Israel. Just as He used them to bring about the first coming of Messiah, He will use them again to bring about the second coming of Messiah. We saw the chapter divided into three major portions. Uh, In the first three verses, we have the introduction to the vision. And we saw about the time when Daniel was given this dream and visions. And then we saw the circumstances around it. Then in verses 4 through 14, if you remember, we found the information that was in the vision. And God unfolds it in five different parts. First, in verses 4 through 7 here, there are four great empires that will be raised up, starting in Daniel's day all the way until the return of the Messiah. Then, if you remember, uh, we studied... uh, and, And by the way, let me just say parenthetically here, that this vision of these kingdoms are identical to chapter 2, but different. They are different in that chapter 2, if you remember, and you might want to go back and listen to it if you weren't here for that message. He's dealing with these successive kingdoms from an outward political point of view. But in this chapter, he's dealing with these kingdoms from an inward spiritual point of view. And that's very important to remember. So we studied the, uh, the nations. Then we, uh, in verse 8, he turns to the Antichrist. And we saw some of his character traits. Uh, More is said about the Antichrist in the book of Daniel than any other book of the Bible. Now, the Revelation will fill in some more details, as will Paul in his letter to the church at Thessalonica. But more is said about this man in this book than any other book. We've seen there are a number of titles, over 30, that are given in the Bible. Some of the more well-known titles are found here in Daniel's, the seventh chapter, where he's called the little one or the little horn, depending on your translation. In the eighth chapter, he's called the king of fierce countenance. Uh, he's called the prince who's to come in the ninth chapter. Uh, he's called the despicable person, the willful king in the eleventh chapter. The prophet Zechariah calls him a foolish shepherd, a worthless shepherd, Paul calls him a man of lawlessness, the man of lawlessness and the son of perdition. He's called in this book, and especially in the Revelation, the beast. But most of you know him by his most popular name, used only once in the scripture in John's first letter, where he's called Antichrist. And so God, through Daniel, tells us something about the nations. He tells us something about the coming Antichrist. But then he tells us about the judgment of Jehovah. When you come to verses 9 and 10... The discouragement that you might have after reading verse 8 is lifted because you see that God is sovereign and there will come a time in human history when it will appear like God has forgotten the world, especially those who live during the time of the great tribulation. But at the appointed time, as Daniel articulates it, 
The righteous judge will come and he will deal with this beast. He will deal with him in the same way that he will deal with every lost person. Every lost person will spend an eternity, the scripture says, in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. And so when Paul wrote to the church at second, in 2 second Thessalonians, he said, at the coming of Christ, he will slay with his breath this antichrist. He will bring him to death, but also to everlasting judgment. Because just as your body, if you've been saved, is not suited to walk on streets of gold, neither is the unbeliever's body suited to walk in a place the Scripture refers to as hell. Then in verses 13 and 14, again setting the context, we found the crowning of the Messiah. Uh, that the Father who decrees all judgment, just as the New Testament teaches, He allows it to unfold under the authority of the Messiah, the Son of Man. And so that's where we've been so far. We're introduced to the vision. We're given certain critical information. Now this morning we come to the interpretation of the vision. And while, again, um, what he saw in the second chapter was disturbing to him, this vision really shakes up the prophet Daniel. There's a new dimension to it that is inward and spiritual that will leave him trembling. And if you understand it correctly... It should change your life as well. Now, as you can see there on your outline, there are three parts to the information this angelic being gives to Daniel. First, we begin with Daniel's puzzled request. And we see his puzzlement expressed in at least two ways. First, I want you to observe from verse 15 that Daniel's pu uh, puzzlement is seen in his distress. Verse 15 begins the portion that we've entitled, again, the interpretation of the vision. But the information doesn't stop. While he gives an interpretation, he also gives us some new information that we didn't find in the middle section of the chapter. And I don't want you to miss this. There's this conversation that transpires between Daniel and this attendant angel, and it leaves the man distressed. Notice verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. The King James puts it this way, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body. Not bad. A little more literal. The most literal reading is out in the margin. If you have a New American Standard with marginal notes, and if you don't own one, you should get one, it will sometimes give you literal renderings out in the margin that when you go from the original language, in this case, Aramaic, we're in the Aramaic section, or in other portions of Daniel, Hebrew. Remember, chapter 2 through 7 is in Aramaic. While chapter 7 begins a new section in the book, and that he moves from the third-person pronoun to the first-person pronoun, he is now giving a first-hand account. Chapters 2 through 7 are in Aramaic, if you remember that, for a reason. Because he's speaking about the Gentile nations as it will affect them. And that was their language in this day. But sometimes in Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek, the three languages of the Bible, it's a little wooden to translate it exactly as it appears in the original. But if you go out in the margin, you will see it says literally, I, Daniel, was distressed in my spirit in its sheath. In its sheath. And so the body is viewed here as containing the spirit. It's like a sheath containing a knife. Next time you guys are hunting and you have a knife in your sheath, 
Think of the knife as your spirit, as your soul, as the immaterial portion of you. And think of your sheath as the body. Your body is like a sheath and that it contains your soul and your spirit. And the moment you die, though your body is laid in some grave, the real you inside of you is either absent from the body and present with the Lord or absent from the body and in a place called Hades. And someday God will raise up the body of both believers and unbelievers, one body suited for heaven, the other body suited for hell, that will experience pain without ever being consumed in the fire. Now, we all have a sense that our persons within us are forever because as Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes, the third chapter, God has written eternity into our hearts. And so Daniel, in describing what's going on on the inside, says, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Why is he so alarmed and burdened? Because there's something about prophecy that while it's sweet in your mouth, it's bitter in your belly. That's the effect prophecy should have on you. It should be sweet in your mouth. There's a sweetness to it, a sweet dimension to it, but there's a bitter dimension to it. That's precisely how John in the Revelation describes it. We read in Revelation 10.10, I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey, and when I ate it, my stomach was made bitter. Prophecy? is bitter and it's sweet when you understand the promises and the deliverance that's coming. It's sweet to the believer. But when you understand the persecution that's coming, the harassment that's coming on God's people, the saints, and it has already begun, but it will unfold in a way like we've never seen it in human history after the rapture of the church, though it's present today because the spirit of Antichrist is already at work. There's a bitterness to it. When you think about the eternal judgment that is coming on the lost, there's a bitterness to it. So part of prophecy should excite you. The other part should burden you. You will be burdened to warn men and women and boys and girls to flee from the wrath to come. That's what Peter said. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming day of God. So we need to ask a question. Why is he so alarmed? Why is he so burdened? Why is he so distressed? There are two reasons if you study these verses carefully. The first concerns the time span of the coming. The second, the character of these coming kingdoms. So first, the time span of the coming kingdoms. Let's think about the time span. Daniel knew how long the Jews would be in exile. How did he know? Because the prophet Jeremiah wrote about it ever before they were carried away into exile. The prophet said by the Spirit of God that this exile would last for 70 years. Uh, when we come to Daniel 9, we're going to find Daniel the prophet reading Jeremiah the prophet. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Jeremiah 25, 11, this whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Jeremiah 28, 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place, namely Jerusalem. Perhaps at one time, Daniel had hoped 
that there would be a revival amongst the people of God. Remember, they are carried into exile as the disciplinary hand of God is at work. He disciplines those whom he loves. Because they had rebelled against them, God was dealing with them. And Daniel, you know, had to have been longing and waiting and hoping for a revival amongst the people of God. Maybe he thought that God, because the prophet Jeremiah said he'd bring them back into Jerusalem, that he'd gather the Jewish people from across the planet as a contemporary writer of his day, Ezekiel, wrote of, and Messiah's kingdom would come. But Daniel began to recognize that was not going to happen in his lifetime. Daniel had known the prophet Isaiah who predicted 175 years before King Cyrus is ever born that a guy is going to come to the throne, his name is Cyrus, and he's going to let the people go. He had read Isaiah. He knew what Isaiah had written. Isaiah, of course, lived long before him. But he knew what Isaiah the prophet had written, that God is going to raise up a king by the name of Cyrus who's going to let the people go. And of course, Cyrus is already coming to the forefront in Daniel's lifetime. Let me read the Isaiah text. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. Why? Because the king's heart is in the hand of God. He turns it however he wishes. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. And so now Cyrus has become a well-known figure in Daniel's day. And maybe he's thinking since the kingdom will be headquartered in Jerusalem as the Old Testament prophets speak, that the kingdom will come. But as he begins to think and meditate, first as he is given a dream by Nebuchadnezzar of four successive kingdoms, the fourth kingdom coming in two parts. We saw there was a gap of time. And then a fifth kingdom, that it would have to take a period of time. Now, before he is done, he sees the kingdom of Babylonia fall. And then he sees the Medes and the Persians come into the forefront. But even if there was a rapid rise and fall like there had been with Babylon, it would take at least two centuries and therefore would never happen in his lifetime. But then when he is given this vision and this dream, he realizes, oh no, this is a long period of time. This is what the New Testament, what Jesus calls the times of the Gentiles. And don't confuse that with the fullness of the Gentiles. When the church is complete, the times of the Gentiles begins with Babylon and it goes all the way until the second coming of the Lord Jesus. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. But beyond the time span that distressed him, the character of the coming kingdoms brought great distress in his life. It kept alarming him. Now, the kingdom that Daniel lived in was relatively benign. Uh, we saw the symbolism of the kingdom that he initially began with, a lion with wings, whose wings are plucked and then given a human heart, and it perfectly represents the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, who's humbled and then given a regenerated heart. You'll meet him in heaven someday. But the kingdoms that follow are far fiercer. And this final fourth kingdom, this revived kingdom with a little horn, absolutely terrifies him. I said, again, if you study prophecy, and if you study it properly, when you understand the horror of the coming great tribulation, what Jeremiah calls the time of Jacob's trouble, 
when you understand the persecution that God's people are going to face, when you understand the terrible, vicious reign of the coming Antichrist, when you understand the eternal wrath that lost people will come over, a healthy study of prophecy will shake up your sheath. Your spirit within will be so moved, it will literally, as we will see before we're done this morning, even affect your body. And that's how Daniel was affected. It moved him not to complacency. It moved him to action. Now, beyond the puzzlement is seen in his distress, I want you to think about Daniel's puzzlement that led to his desire. Point B, if you're taking notes. Whatever natural shyness Daniel had in approaching this celestial being as he's identified in subsequent chapters, and even here in the context, it's overcome all at once. Look at verse 16. I approached one of those. One of those who? Well, we already studied him last week. One of those myriads of myriads of angels that are described back in verse 10. I approached one of those. Why he approached this particular one, we don't know. Maybe it was Gabriel, who will be later named in the book of Daniel. But I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So this vision so grips him, any reluctance that he has is removed, and he goes and he approaches this angel. Now, usually... When one approaches one of God's angels, they do so with fear and trembling. In fact, we will see that that's Daniel's reaction in the 10th chapter. But in this particular event, he is so overcome with the vision, and he wants to understand it. All reluctance is gone, and he approaches this holy angel. Now, that's Daniel's puzzled request. That moves us, like a three-act play, to Daniel's prophetic review, given in verses 17 through 27. It's very interesting how this angel guides Daniel through the visions which God had just given him. And I want you to notice first that God gives him the interpretation in summary fashion, and then he will give him the interpretation in specific detail. So we begin with the vision interpreted in summary. First, there's a general interpretation in 17 and 18, and then in 19 to 27, he moves past that general outline and he fills in all the details. Look at verse 17. He begins by speaking of the four passing kingdoms. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. He described, if you remember, the great empire of Babylon. He described the expansive empire of Medo-Persia. He described the sprawling empire of Greece. And then he described the extensive empire of Rome. And he says here that there are four kings. He described them, remember, as four vicious animals. A winged lion, remember that? A bear, a ferocious bear, picturing Medo-Persia, remember that? Then the leopard, producing Greece with the rapidity in which Alexander the Great, by prophecy, is going to conquer the world. And then the fourth beast is so unusual, there's not an animal to really describe him, so he doesn't relate him to a specific animal. And he says here in verse 17 that these four kings will arise from the earth. Now, I've told you before that next to Genesis, the number one attacked book in all the Bible is Daniel. They hate Daniel because 
he is writing the future ever before it happens. So they want to put a late date on Daniel. They want to say, well, Daniel didn't write it. Someone centuries after Daniel wrote it, and they're just recording history. Well, that's not Jesus' view. He doesn't call him Daniel the historian. He calls him, quoting Daniel 9, Daniel the prophet. But we will see that even with the late second century date that they put on the book of Daniel, because they're not too smart, (laughs) they are going to miss it. There's going to be some prophecies that will even take place during that time frame after the so-called writing of Daniel. Now, the Jews have always believed in the 6th century writing of Daniel, as did did the church fathers, as did Jesus, as do evangelical scholars. But look, when you've got someone who criticizes Isaiah, there's a pastor in our town who speaks about Tritero-Isaiah. When you meet some guy who's talking about two Isaiahs or three Isaiahs, you're listening to a liberal You're listening to someone who does not believe in the authority of the Word of God. Why? Because they say, how could Isaiah write about Cyrus 175 years before he's born? Because God wrote through Isaiah. How can Daniel write about all these kingdoms ever before they happen? Because our God knows the future. Now, there's a new view that has entered into evangelicalism There are books that are coming out on InterVarsity Press, once an evangelical press, that says that God does not know the future. That is sheer, unadulterated heresy. And so they attack this verse because they say, well, in verse 3, he said they came out of the sea. But in this verse, he says they will arise from the earth. Remember, in the first section, he's using symbols. This is apocalyptic literature. And most of the apocalyptic literature in the Scripture will define itself. And so he begins by giving him symbols, but he's not in the symbolic portion. He's giving the interpretation. And so we saw from a number of texts, if you weren't here, you might want to go back and listen to the first of three sermons here in the seventh chapter, we saw from a number of verses that the term sea can be used figuratively. That the great sea here is not literally the Mediterranean Sea, but the mass of humanity as we use it in English sometimes. We say, oh, look at that great sea of people. Well, in verse 17, he's not speaking symbolically, but literally he's giving the the interpretation. And he tells us that these four Beasts, so to speak, are four kings who arise from the earth. There are no contradictions anywhere in the Bible. I will share the gospel with unbelievers, and they say it's filled with contradictions. I say, okay, show me one. Show me one. They're just blowing smoke. They can't find a contradiction in the Bible. And if you are here for our course on bibliology, and many of you should come on Wednesday nights, Some of you need to be bringing your children on Wednesday nights. They need to be grounded because we teach on Wednesday nights seminary-level courses very often. And they need to be grounded because when they go to the university, they're going to be attacked. I don't know what you're doing on Wednesday nights. Some of you, the most spiritual thing to do is be at home with those little children. But some of you could be here, and you should try to be here. But in our course in Bibliology, we went through all the so-called alleged contradictions in the Bible. There are none. I've been studying this book carefully for 40 plus years, and I've never ever found one. But then after he describes these four passing kingdoms, the angel goes on to describe this fifth 
permanent kingdom. Look at verse 18. It begins with a contrastive conjunction. You ought to circle the first word, but. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom for ages to come. Hold your finger here. Turn to the book of Revelation for just a moment. It's the last book of the Bible if you're new to it. There is a coming permanent kingdom that Daniel says is for all ages to come. He's mentioning here the kingdom of the Messiah, the fifth and final kingdom after Rome is finished. And there is a number of verses in the New Testament that speaks of this kingdom. It's promised in the Old Testament, though the length of it is given only in the New Testament. It is going to last for a thousand years. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. The second coming of Christ is unfolding, not the rapture, the second coming in the 19th chapter, beginning now in the 11th verse. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. That's Jesus on this horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him. It's not a tattoo, by the way. It's written probably on his, on his sheath that's on his sword. Some use this as the biblical basis for tattoos. Oh, how people abuse the scriptures. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Friend, that's us. We're coming back with Jesus. After seven years before this event, seven plus years, because the church is raptured, there's an undisclosed period of time, and then the tribulation period begins. That is seven years long. And it is certainly rapid, but we don't know how much space there is between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll study that in Revelation. But while in heaven, we are rewarded for our service. You are saved by grace. You're rewarded for service that God does through you as you yield to the Spirit. And now we're coming back with Jesus, and the Scripture teaches that we are clothed in fine linens, white and clean. Now look at chapter 20 in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sailed over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So Messiah comes, rules for a thousand years. The devil is locked up. But there'll be sin on the earth. We'll see how, because sometimes we blame things on the devil that the devil has nothing to do with. And the proof of how fallen we are is we will see at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released and he will deceive the nations. But during that thousand years, and people will live a long period of time. You see, at the second coming, those who are alive, those who survive the great tribulation, and there will be some, they will enter into the kingdom in their natural bodies. And they'll have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. This is why Satan will be able to deceive some of the nations. Some who make the rapture of the church and the second coming one event cannot literally interpret prophecy. Why? Because at the end of the thousand years, there's this big rebellion. And they come against God's Messiah. 
But if we're raptured before the great tribulation period, which we will be, and the seven years begin, if it's not one and the same event, look, in your resurrection body, you can't sin. No one can sin or a resurrection. You'll be like Christ, the Scripture says. So there's obviously people who are not raptured, which argues for a post-tribulational rapture, who enter the millennial reign. But even during that thousand years, some will only live to be a hundred and die. Most will live like the days of Noah, 900, a thousand years, the whole time. And they're going to have a lot of kids. Just because I'm saved doesn't mean that my children are saved or my grandchildren are saved. God has children, and he has no grandchildren. He has no great-grandchildren. Each of us must make a personal decision for Christ. And some of those great people who enter into the millennial reign, who have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, some of them will not respond, and the devil will deceive them. Verse 4, then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. I saw the words of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned for a thousand years. So not only will we come back on white stallions with Jesus to rule and reign, but tribulation saints who are slaughtered during the seven-year time, they're going to be resurrected and they're going to rule and reign with us. It's incredible. And by the way, that will be the featured way of death. Beheading. The spirit of Antichrist is already at work. And there are Christians today who are being beheaded because they refuse to repent at the sword. They will confess Jesus to the end. And that's what will happen during the great tribulation period. Those who do not have the mark of the beast, who refuse to take it, most of them are going to lose their heads, literally. All of these people who never met each other, these writers, Daniel and John, there's a theme that runs all the way through it. Now think about it. If you ask 10 people today who spoke the same language to write a book, each of them, on religion, and then you tried to put that book together into one, what kind of a mess would you have? Yet you have over 40 human authors who live over a period of about 1,600 years under a wide variety of conditions. And when their books are brought together, there's one book, not a collection of books. These authors wrote on three different continents, Africa, Asia, Europe. They wrote from many diverse places, Moses in a desert, Paul in a prison, John in exile. They wrote in three different languages. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. They're from a variety of backgrounds. Moses is a spiritual leader. Joshua is a military leader. David's a shepherd. Nehemiah, he's a cupbearer. Solomon, he's a king. Amos, he's a herdsman. Daniel, we've seen, he's a prime minister of sorts. Matthew, a tax collector. Luke, a medical doctor. Paul, a rabbi. The apostle Peter, a fisherman. And when the book is brought together, there's not one contradiction And there's one cohesive thread from Genesis all the way to the Revelation. Why? Because behind every single human author, there is one divine author, God the Holy Spirit. Now compare that to the Quran. The Quran's written by one person, Zari Ibn Thabat, under the supervision of Muhammad's father-in-law, Abu Bakr. 
He writes about 650 A.D. Remember, Muhammad is a Johnny-come-lately. He comes 600 years after Christ. So when you get Christmas cards and you see minarets on them, and I get them every single year, I thought, who are these people who are producing these Christmas cards? You may see minarets when you go to the old city today, but there were no minarets in the time of Christ because Muhammad comes 600 years after Christ. One person writes the Quran, and in 650... A number of Arab scholars uh, removed all the variant and contradictory additions to give us the one that they read today. How different the scripture is from the Quran. There's no prophecy in the Quran, not a single one, as I was witnessing to a taxi driver recently in Kentucky. Not one, not a single one. But throughout the word of God, because God knows the future, he writes the future. So here's Daniel chapter 7, verse 18. Go back here, verse 18. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. And of course, this is the fifth kingdom. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now think about that the next time you pray it. Have you understood it in light of what Daniel and the Revelation says? We are praying for Jesus to come back where his kingdom will come literally on the earth for a thousand years and his will will be carried out as it's being carried out in heaven today. Why would Jesus tell you to pray that if it were not going to happen? Why would he tell you, blessed are the meek for they should inherit the earth if it wasn't going to take place? Now listen to me, you can get discouraged in the days that we're living in. But I want to remind you that one of these days, Messiah is coming back, and he will come back with all of his saints clothed in blood-washed white robes, and he will rule and reign. And all these people who have mocked and defied God throughout the ages, they will all yield. Everyone will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, this is nothing new what we're seeing our day. Throughout the history of humanity, they have always clubbed God's ables. They've mocked his Josephs. They've stoned his saints. They've killed his prophets. They've poked fun at his preachers. And they've slain God's people as they're doing today. But he is in control. The saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom for ages to come. Rather than this wicked world in these wicked men and women who are leading the nations of this world, they will not be in charge. The Lord Jesus, Yeshua, Messiah will be in charge and we will rule and reign with him. Now, that's the summary of the kingdom. Now he gives it in detail, beginning in verse 19. The vision is interpreted in detail. Daniel's not entirely satisfied with the summary, and so he asks the interpreter for more information, especially as it relates to this fourth beast, this fourth kingdom. And so the angel from heaven begins by reviewing the symbolism of the fourth kingdom. Look at verse 19. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. Now, we saw this fourth beast in the second chapter, and we saw that it was the Roman Empire. But the Bible, again, interprets itself. So verse 19 speaks of the fourth beast, but if you look down into verse 23, it speaks of a fourth kingdom. 
And if you know history, you know there's only been four worldwide empires in the history of man. But there's a dimension to this fourth empire that never happened in the days of Rome. Remember, the first three empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece were all conquered. Rome was never conquered. It just fell apart. It rotted apart from the inside out. But God speaks of a coming dimension of this fourth empire that has never happened. When there is going to be a coalition of nations, ten horns, which verse 24 tells us ten kings that will arise. And so we know this fourth beast is the Roman Empire revived, so to speak. And again, if you weren't here for that, you might want to go back and listen to the prior sermons. Look at verse 20, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than all its associates. Daniel is saying that in my vision I saw this horrendous beast with ten horns. And then I saw this other horn, which again goes back to verse 8. We were studied last time. This little one, or this little horn, some of you add a word in in some of your translations to smooth it out. It comes up. So there's this ten-nation coalition, and amongst these ten nations, an eleventh horn comes up, it sprouts up, It subdues three of them. There's obviously three nations that don't agree with this coming world leader, and he will crush those three. I kept looking, verse 21, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. So verse 21 informs me that this little one, this little horn had success in persecuting God's saints. For how long, you say? Verse 22, until, until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. We saw the Ancient of Days last week, a reference to God the Father. And in this perfect timing, he will say to his son, go get your kingdom. And he will come and it will be over for the Antichrist. So the symbolism of the fourth kingdom is reviewed. But now in verses 23 through 26, the symbolism of the fourth kingdom is revealed in further detail. Look at verse 23. It's an important verse. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth. He's speaking of a one world global government. It's going to happen. Listen, after the church is raptured, there's going to be such chaos across the planet. The world is not going to know what to do. And they're going to agree on a one world leader, a one world government that will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. Again, according to verse 2, this is the Roman Empire. So the first part of the Roman Empire didn't express itself like this. Except uh, it had a cultural rule, but it never devoured the whole earth, but that is going to happen. Put out in the margin, would you, Revelation 13 and verse 8. Write that next to verse 23. Let me read it to you. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, contextually the little horn, the Antichrist. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life. They'll be slow. So there's, there's a book God has. We're going to study God's library when we come to chapter 12, and there's a book called the Lamb's Book of Life, and in it, ever before God spoke the world into existence, he put the name of every person who would ever be saved in his book. You say, 
he prearranged it. No, God is omniscient. He knew if God didn't know who was going to be saved and who wasn't going to be saved, God wouldn't be God. He knows the beginning from the end, and so in eternity past, he wrote the names of every person who would be saved. That in no way, shape, or form changes your free will, my friend. And so this little horn, he's going to become a big horn of sorts. Look at verse 24. He begins to unfold some of the details of this coming final leader. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. Now, don't miss this. So first, there's this one world government that he speaks of in 23. And then in 24, out of this one world government is going to come ten nations. Now, when the European common market called today the EU came online, people said, that's it. Ten nations. Then they became 11 and 12 and 13 and 15. I don't know how many they have, and the Brits are thinking of leaving. That's not what he's speaking about. Follow the chronology very, very carefully. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. So first the one world government, then the ten kings arise. So it could be the European common market. That would be the western sphere of... Europe, or it could be the eastern leg, which would be a coalition of Arab nations, but 10 of them are going to come together. This is after the rapture of the church when the one world government comes. And another will arise after them. That's number 11. And he will be different from the previous ones, and he will subdue three kings. Now, remember, kings and kingdoms are used interchangeably all the way through the chapter. Somehow, this little horn, after the 10 kingdoms arise... An 11th in the middle of them is going to come up, and from here will come the Antichrist. Verse 25, he goes on to describe him. He, this little horn, will speak out against the Most High. Remember, I called him Mr. Big Mouth. He's got a big mouth. Here he comes. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now, I should say that there is a lot of time and energy that has been spent in the history of the church on identifying the Antichrist. In the first century, many believers thought it was Nero because of the way he harshly treated Christians, and he made a claim to divinity. In AD 81, Emperor Domitian, some thought he was the Antichrist because he also claimed to be God and demanded worship. In the Middle Ages, many said it was Muhammad. Because if you didn't repent at the sword, you were killed, just like ISIS is doing today. And many so-called Christians defected from the faith, and they gave their allegiance to Islam. Uh, Emperor Frederick II and Pope Gregory IX uh, took great pleasure in calling each other the Antichrist. Uh, during the time of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther said the Pope was the Antichrist. Some years later, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, a confession that is used by the Reformed Church today. They wrote in 1646 that the Pope, speaking of the one who was alive in their day, was the Antichrist. Obviously, Article 25 was wrong. There is no other head of the church than the Lord Jesus Christ. I say amen to that. In no sense can the Pope of Rome be the head of it. I say amen to that. Rather, he is that Antichrist speaking of the Pope of Rome, the man of sin, the son of damnation, who glorifies himself as opposed to Christ in everything related to God. Now, they thought it was the Pope who was alive then. Now, it may be a coming Pope. 
because we're going to see that with the Antichrist, there's going to be a one-world religion, but he won't be the Antichrist. In this one-world religion, the Bible says, as we're going to study in the Revelation, will come from a city that is built on seven hills. In either case, the Pope in 1646 was not the Antichrist. In more contemporary times, some said Napoleon was the Antichrist. Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, Khrushchev. When I was a new Christian, it was popular to say Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. Some said later on it was Reagan. Some today say it's Obama. And some have tried to key off of the number 666, the number of the Antichrist. And in many languages, like Greek and Hebrew, every letter of the alphabet has a numerical equivalent. So in Greek, alpha is one, beta is two, and so forth. And the same is true in a case language like Latin. And if you take the crown that the Pope wears and the inscription that's written on its side and you manipulate it and you play around with it, some have come up with the number 666. That would be like, well, my last name is Brogi, six letters, B-R-O-G-G-I. My middle name is Joseph, six letters. My first name is Carl, but in Spanish it's Carlos, so 666. There you have it, all right? I mean, you can play all kinds of games. The fact is, is we do not know who the Antichrist is, and no one will know until he is revealed. But while we do not know who he is, we know what he is like. And there are at least three character traits that he underscores for us. Number one, the Antichrist will be a blasphemer. We learn that in verse 25. He will speak out against the Most High. We've already read back in verse 20. He had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts. He's a great braggart. Hmm. Second Thessalonians describes him in the second chapter. He is the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. The Antichrist will commit the ultimate act of blasphemy. In the middle, dead center, Jesus tells us, as Daniel tells us, in the dead center point of the tribulation, he'll go into a rebuilt temple and call himself God. He's a blasphemer. He's also the persecutor. Verse 25, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. That word wear down or wear out in some of your Bibles is a Hebrew word that means to beat down, to oppress, to harass. And he's going to deal with God's people in a brutal way. Revelation 13, 7, put it in the margin next to this verse. Just listen. It was given to him, the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to them. You say, well, wait a minute. Who are these saints that Daniel in the Revelation speaks of? I thought the church has been raptured. Remember, there are three groups of saints in the Bible. There's Old Testament saints, there's church saints, and there's tribulation saints. There's Old Testament saints, Psalm 34, verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There's church saints. You can call me St. Carl if you want. That's what the scripture would say. And if you're born again, you too are a holy one, not based on your performance, but the righteousness God gave you and imputed to you as a gift by his grace and mercy. But there's coming a future group of people who will be saints after the rapture of the church who are converted. And the Antichrist will wear down the saints. And we will study in the Revelation by seizure, by starving, by beheading, 
there's going to be a great slaughter. He's a persecutor. Third, he will be an innovator. He will be, I mean, he will have solutions like no one else will have. Verse 25, he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. Now, we're not told specifically how. Maybe in terms of times, he will erase the B.C. before Christ, A.D., not after death, Anno Domini, Latin. This is 2016, Anno Domini, in the year of the Lord. Maybe he'll erase that distinction to smush every remembrance of the Lord Jesus. But he will also make alterations in law, not laws. Some of your translations say laws. Look in the New American Standard. It's law, singular, in the Hebrew text. The NASB is so accurate. The New King James also puts it as law, singular. And this particular word, law, daf in Hebrew, is used repeatedly in the Bible of God's moral law. How will he make alterations? We're not told. Maybe uh, he'll try to do what the French did during the time of the French Revolution where they tried to create a 10-day work week to obliterate the worship of God on Sunday. Maybe they will try to obliterate, especially since we're dealing largely with Jews here, Sabbat, the Sabbath, the seventh day that they worshiped on. We don't know, but I want to tell you the spirit of Antichrist, it's already at work. Now remember, John tells us, 1 John 2, that since the ascension of Christ and then the sending of the Spirit on Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, we entered into the last days. The Bible speaks not just of the last days, but latter times, as Daniel will speak of, as Paul will speak of, what we might call the last of the last days. And the Scripture unfolds that while the Spirit of Antichrist, that Spirit that is against the Lord Jesus has always been at work, it's going to increase and express itself broader and wider and more powerfully until it is embodied in a man after the rapture. Our own President of the United States said while in Britain this week, oh, the people of North Carolina are good people, but they are mistaken. They should not have passed a law that would prevent transgender people from using our bathrooms. By the way, I've shopped at Target for the last time. One of the political leaders said, oh, you know, let people use whatever bathroom they want. I don't want some pervert coming into the bathroom where my granddaughter is. Not on your life. But what is happening? A man got fired this week because he spoke out against transgender bathrooms. People are fearful the same for bivocational pastors, which many are. Or you work for a company and you preach in the pulpit that transgenderism is wrong. There's no such thing. I hope you realize it. Sex is not determined between your ears. It's determined between your legs. There's no such thing. Not at all. But if you speak out against it, some pastors, I think, will lose their jobs in some companies. What if the Marine Corps says you can't go to a church if you believe that transgenderism is evil. You say that will never happen. Who would have ever thought that what is happening is happening? What are those who call darkness light, who call sweet bitter? The spirit of Antichrist is growing in our day. There's no other explanation. Verse 25, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, 
and half a time. That's the same truth as recorded in Revelation 13 and verse 5. And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Now, if you've studied Bible prophecy, then you know the phrase time, times, and half a time is very, very important. Unlike English, languages like Hebrew and Aramaic have what we call a singular, a dual, and a uh, plural. A singular refers to one, a dual refers to only two, and a plural refers to three or more. So the Hebrew text is very, very precise. Now we know from Daniel 9 in the book of Revelation that the coming tribulation period is seven years. And so half of the tribulation is three and a half years. And right in the midpoint, Daniel will tell us, Jesus will quote it, when the Antichrist commits the abomination of desolation, there will be left 42 months or three and a half years. Now, we don't really have a dual in English. We have a singular or a plural, though we can kind of manipulate a dual. If I said to you, well, I had all of my friends over last night, both of them, I, I would be saying, well, you know, I only have two friends, so to speak. Uh, one of the things I always do when I look at children's Bibles, I want to see how accurate they are. I go to Genesis and I go to the flaming sword of fire and I want to see if there's one angel or ten angels. There's only two because in Hebrew it is a duel. Now cherubim is like our word deer. Deer can refer to one deer or all herd of deer. Context determines. Well, there's no ambiguity in Hebrew. A duel is a duel. So you have a time, that's one year. Times, it's a duel, that's two years. And half a time, that's three three and a half years. And we're going to see it, that God has a prophetic schedule in the ninth chapter, 490 years for Israel. 483 of those years have already transpired. There's seven years left. The clock stopped when Israel rejected the Messiah, but God is going to start the clock back up after the rapture of the church. I'm getting ahead of myself, forget that. Um... There's coming a time called the time of Jacob's trouble. And John tells us in John's gospel the reason God stopped the clock was because of Israel's unbelief. In fact, Jesus said in John 5, in verse 43, speaking to the Jewish people, I have come in my Father's name and you have not received me. But another will come in his own name and you will receive him. They didn't receive the Lord Jesus, but when this one world leader comes, who's an innovator, who will have a solution for the heartache in the Middle East, they're going to believe him until the midpoint of the tribulation. They will be given into his hands for a time, times, and half a times. So first half, three and a half, second half, three and a half. This next slide, you see some of the references, 42 months, 1,260 days, time, times, and half of times, three and a half years given in the Word of God. But, verse 26, look at the first word, but the court will sit for judgment and dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. When is that going to happen? When will the court sit in judgment? Verse 27 reveals, then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and his dominion will serve and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Praise the Lord. This will all happen when Jesus shows up at the end of the tribulation. 
God will fulfill this down to the smallest jot of a pen. Listen, all of the kingdoms, because we're looking in hindsight, Daniel was looking in the future. He describes what's going to happen to Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. We've seen so much of that already fulfilled to the smallest letter of the law. If he fulfilled it that way, that's how he's going to fulfill it for the revived Roman Empire and for the fifth kingdom when Jesus comes. And that brings us just quickly to Daniel's personal reaction. It's given on two levels. First, we discover that Daniel was physically drained. Verse 28, at this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale. Though the final outcome is very encouraging, the ferocity of the attack that's going to come by this little horn, this little one, shook him to the core. His thoughts were greatly alarming him. His face grew pale. The King James renders it. His countenance changed. And most of us have witnessed this reaction in people where they become so frightened, the nerves running uh, from their brain into their face changes the circulation and they grow pale. If you are a darker skinned person, you grow kind of an ashen look. Daniel grew pale. It shook his sheath because of what was going on in his spirit. Secondly, Daniel was spiritually silent. He was spiritually silent. Notice again the rest of the verse. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. He's almost sick, but rather than call attention to himself and rather than be some spiritual braggart about telling you how great he is because of what God has shown him, he kept the matter to himself. Now, what should a healthy study of prophecy do for you? Let me suggest two applications as we leave. Number one, this passage teaches me that a proper understanding of Bible prophecy should not lead us to apathy, but to action. You know, I meet Christians who are so consumed with Bible prophecy that they're not effective in the here and now. They're so consumed with the then and later, the here and now are meaningless to them. When Audrey and I were first married, there was a couple in our church And they told us they weren't going to have any children because they believed the end was so near they didn't want to bring children into this world. Look, that's disobedience. Be fruitful and multiply, period. And I'm sure 35, 40 years later, they have deep regrets. I remember speaking to a person who said, no, I don't want to give to the church building fund. I said, oh, is there a problem? Well, we're going to be raptured so soon. It's a waste of money. Okay. Some people are so heavenly minded, they are no earthly good. But let's ask a question about Daniel. When did this vision take place? Well, we're told in the opening verse, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now, Belshazzar, because it's documented in the book of Daniel, will rule for 15 years. And so this vision happened in the first year, 14 years before the handwriting appears on the wall, the night his kingdom is overthrown by Medo-Persia. So the vision in this chapter takes place five years after the events of chapter 4 and 14 years before the events of chapter 5. So think about it. Remember, when you come to the sixth chapter, you don't meet him as a teenager around 16, 17, 18 years of old. You meet him as an old man in the lion's den. He's about 85, 90 years old. But what did Daniel do with prophecy? He had a burden. He had a compassion for King Nebuchadnezzar. How on earth did King Nebuchadnezzar ever repent and call God 
great because Daniel witnessed to him. Even Darius, when he threw him into the lion's den, remember we so carefully noted it, the compassion and the respect that he had towards that king who threw him in there because he cared about his soul. See, it moved Daniel not to apathy. It moved him to action. One of the great Bible teachers of the 1930s and 40s was Dr. Harry Ironside. And one of the things he did, of course, was he pastored Moody Church in Chicago. And he had did a series on the rapture or the coming tribulation, the second coming. And one of his parishioners came up to him and he said, Pastor, I hold to the exact same position you hold. He said, wonderful. Does my position, does the Bible's position hold you? What did he mean? In other words, it's not enough to have some kind of carnal excitement of the end times. Does it hold you? Has it gripped your soul? Has it shaken your sheath as it did Daniel's because his spirit was so moved? Secondly, a proper understanding of Bible prophecy should not produce arrogance, but compassion. It should produce compassion. I don't find Daniel thinking, well, in the end, we're going to rule. God's people are going to come out on top. So who cares about the rest of these pagans? No, he cared about people. In fact, when he will come to the 12th chapter, we will say, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever. Listen, if you study Bible prophecy, if you really understand Bible prophecy, when you understand the horror of the coming Antichrist and the persecution that he will bring, when you understand the terrible nature of the coming tribulation, when you think of the coming eternal wrath of God, it should cause you to warn men to flee the wrath to come. I've read a lot of biographies on my shelf in my library. I got a section this wide of Christian biographies. And one that was particularly meaningful to me was a biography written by C.T. Studd. He lived in the late 1800s. He was a medical doctor. And he ministered in Africa. Now, he had been raised in the uh, lap of comfort, a very, very wealthy young man who grew up on a large English estate with his brother. And uh, as he began to study Bible prophecy, he said his life as a Christian was changed. And in his biography, he notes three different times in his life that I'd like to read from you, where God used Bible prophecy. First, he speaks of his backslidden state, not some kind of immorality or debauchery, but that he said his heart was cold and that he really wasn't witnessing to people. And he gave the reason why. He said, instead of going and telling others of the love of Christ, I was selfish and kept the knowledge to myself. The result was that gradually my love began to grow cold and the love of the world began to come in. I spent six years in that unhappy, backslidden state. And then he writes, after his brother George dies, and understand, George Studd and C.T. Studd were two of the best-known athletes in the United Kingdom in this day. So he loses his brother, and he says, now what is all the popularity of the world worth to George? What is all the fame and flattery worth? What is it worth to possess all the riches in the world when a man comes to face eternity? And a voice seemed to answer from Scripture, vanity of vanities, all is vanities. A few days later, he writes in his journal, God has given me 
far more than is sufficient to keep my body and soul together. So how can I spend the best years of my life in working for myself and in the honors and pleasures of this world while thousands and thousands of souls are perishing every day without ever hearing the name of Christ? And then what moved him is he read a tract by an atheist. Listen to these words. The atheist said, Did I firmly believe, as millions say they do, that the knowledge and practice of religion in this life influences destiny in another? Religion would mean to me everything. I would cast away earthly enjoyments as dross, earthly cares as follies, and earthly thoughts and feelings as vanity. Religion would be my first waking thought and my last image before sleep sank me into unconsciousness. I should labor in its cause alone. I would make take thought for... Tomorrow alone, for eternity alone, I would esteem one soul gained for heaven a life worth of suffering. Earthly consequences, writes the atheist, should never stay my hand nor seal my lips. Earth, its joys, its griefs would occupy no moment of my thoughts. I would strive to look upon eternity alone and the immoral, immortal souls around me soon to be everlastingly happy or everlastingly miserable He mocks Christians as he continues. I would go forth to the world and preach to it in season and out of season. And my text would be, for what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? After reading that, C.T. Studd wrote, I had once saw that this was the truly consistent Christian life. When I looked back upon my life and I saw how inconsistent it had been, I therefore determined from that time forth my life should be consistent. I cannot tell you what joy it gave me to bring the first soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have tasted almost all the pleasures this world can give. I do not suppose there is one that I have not experienced, but I can tell you that those pleasures were as nothing compared to the joy of saving one soul for Christ. And so he goes to Africa, he sells everything he has, reaching the African people, this medical doctor, with the gospel. Now, if you're a believer, and you really understand prophecy, you understand what's ahead, not just in the short run, but in the eternal run, it should change your life. There's not a person in this room who can't be involved, not a person within the sound of my voice who cannot be involved in bringing people to Yeshua Masiach, Jesus the Messiah. Some of you could take someone through the gospel this week. Some of you could do something as simple as invite them to church next week. But all of us can be involved, and we should be. But if you're here today and you're not saved... What lies ahead for you is not pleasant. And if the rapture takes place, the scripture is clear as we will see, you will not believe. You won't get it right then. You will not believe because you reject the truth in this day. In that day, you will believe what is false. And you will spend an eternity wishing that you had changed your mind or repented. And you will have no excuse for what is in front of you as horrible and as just as it is. Because the God who set the penalty paid it completely in the Messiah. So what will you do? Our Father, we thank you today for your mercy, for your grace in Jesus. I pray today for someone here who's never been saved. 
Thank you that whoever will call upon the name of Yeshua, Jesus will be saved. Help someone in simple childlike faith. Just say, Lord Jesus, save me. And Father, I pray for those of us who know you that we would never be ashamed of you. That no matter how bad it may get in our day, that we will never call good evil and evil good that we will stand for what is right, even if it costs us our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.